everyone, and welcome to our podcast, Clear as Mud, where we talk to game developers from all walks of life about their personal and professional journeys. I'm your host, Graham Waldrop. As always, our show is presented by Mudstack, the only asset management and collaboration tool custom-built for game studios and digital artists. For more information, head over to mudstack.com. Today, we welcome Fabio Coriosi, Technical Director at Third Kind Games. We talk about how Fabio had to teach himself programming in order to carve out a career in the industry, his role in the creation of the first-ever comic book designed for VR, and in the ongoing polarizing battle of creating art through AI. He offers an argument that lies directly in the middle of the debate. All right, enough explanation of what's to come. Here it is right now. Here's our interview with Fabio Coriosi. This this VR comic book you made, Magnetique, I was looking through it, and it's not just like you're in VR and you're reading through a comic book in some like VR space. This is actually like a fully immersive VR experience, with like audio, voice acting, music, and puts you sort of right in the world of the story. And you're saying this is the first of its kind that had never been attempted, something like this had never been attempted before. That's correct. We triple checked that it was correct <laughs> back in back in day. Uh, yeah, it was a weird idea we had about how to exploit VR in a different way. Uh, of course, the great part of my career is in gaming, but I like comics very much. I actually was a script writer, but uh, that was a different part of, part of my life that uh, it wasn't really connected to the video game. But I thought, hey, let's merge the two worlds. And uh, we had this idea about trying to exploit what was, um, at the time, what was something that wasn't very explored like it is right now, which is 360 drawing. Uh, at the moment, 360 drawing is way more present uh, with, uh, with posts on Facebook and there are websites. Uh, but back then, there wasn't really any. And we, we ended up creating a very small tool in um, Photoshop where you can literally pretty much draw in um, uh, unwrapped cube and then draw in every uh, in every phase of the cube. And then this, this little plugin in Photoshop was actually giving you uh, already the uh, preview of what was going on in 360. And we used that kind of like as a proof of concept. And then we decided, hey, let's make a comic out of it. We kind of designed it on a way that it was uh, uh, immersive, but not requesting you to go through every direction. There are um, there are several aspects of when you design a game or an experience in VR, and uh, I was actually teaching these kind of aspects in some of the universities in Rome, and uh, there is some rules like the 90 degrees rule or the 80, um, 180 degrees rules uh, that tells you that pretty much the center of the action should be uh, uh, in a place that is uh, uh, either in front of you or just not very far away. So you should never put stuff in the back if you're not aiming people to move around uh, in uh, that kind of experience. Of course, that was much more true back in the day when you didn't, you had way more uh, way less freedom than now nowadays uh, uh, you have oculus quest and all these systems that have inside tracking you can go inside a room and uh, you can literally track all your room and turn around as you wish etc but uh, sometimes accessibility in vr is not as pushed as in in other um entertainment so it was nice to say hey you're reading comics you're fully immersed into it so you have this uh, uh world that uh, revolves around you and you can literally look at like it was a 3d scene but it wasn't it was free uh, it was all full drawn by uh, a friend which is a comic casting comic artist in italy which uh, is emilio and uh but we also want to pay attention on how you read things, how the balloon should uh, zoom in when you um, gaze to them, uh, how the, um, the voiceover will detect how you experience the product. So there were several considerations. It wasn't very successful. We released it on uh, Gear VR and we released it on uh, Steam. It didn't come out from the pack and so we decided not to go forward but i still believe the proof of concept can be used by many others and i believe we actually with 
those that plugin, especially we push forward this concept. I can see that this is used at the moment mostly from people doing uh, sky domes for VR games. Uh, but uh, I still believe it was a fun attempt, and I actually like that. Tried. Uh, Despite working on many games, sometimes the best memories I had are not from the games that are played by the most players. But sometimes there are some particular cases where you enjoy some of the leader products and believe this is true for many uh, indie developers that happen to work in the AAA world. So what was your role on that? I uh, Back then I was uh, um, the head of the XR department for the company, so pretty much the lead programmer, but I also wrote the story. So okay. I was kind of both in the creative and in the tech direction for that, uh, which is unusual, and I don't recommend it, never. <laughs> uh, but, That's a lot uh, of hats to be wearing. It is, it is, and uh, it was it was fun, because uh, as a coder, you rarely get a chance to be that involved with creative. You, all, of course, need, uh, especially when you come into a uh, leadership position, to be a bridge between department, talk to QA, talk to designers, uh, feedback as much as you can especially in an industry like the video game industry which is a lot of uh, iterative work a lot of creative design work and you end up uh, being a little bit of designer just that one two percent that you need still when you get to do it even more it's actually very fun and so what was it like when you're talking about the artistic process of it when you're creating a story that's normally meant to be consumed from one angle, like each panel or each shot in the comic book is from a specific angle, but you have the ability as the player to look around and you're, you are in this 360 sort of perspective, like you were talking about, what was the biggest challenge, I guess, for your, for your artist when. Well, there were a couple of challenges of different specs. Uh, I believe one was purely technical, which is the section in the face of the cube where uh, two uh, faces are meeting. And uh, that particular side, when you're drawing, uh, you can feel it's kind of like uh, you are in the box if you don't do it well. It was actually, um, I still remember vividly that John Carmack actually reviewed our product in on Facebook and uh, called us out uh, and tell us what was going wrong with it. Uh, we actually felt like it was like a god call whenever John Karma tells you something like that. You say, hey, okay, let's stop everything and let's listen for, to his review. And um, he was suggesting some other things like using a cylindrical approach, uh, but we felt that the cube one with the right approach would be the best one. And... Uh, um, we came up with some uh, conclusion about how the environment should be drawn, how the character should be inside the face and not uh, crossing the face of the cube. So there was a technical aspect that we solved. Creative-wise, again, the biggest one that we had to solve was uh, where are you looking and where the people are be will be looking. So there were details right in your back that were a uh, nice addition to the story, mm -hmm. but they were not fundamental. So if right. you lose them, you don't lose the thread of the story. Uh, yeah, it seemed like you know you'd always get from what I saw. You would sort of be put in a position initially. You'd see kind of the shot, and then you'd have the ability to kind of look around your environment if you wanted to from there. But you always had. It seemed like every time there was a new scene, there was always like the camera was very clear about what it was showing initially what's going on, and then you have the ability just to sort of look around, which I thought was smart and, and sort of keeps your focus on where it needs to be, but then you have that extra freedom if you want it. That's correct. Uh, it's If you want to put a video game analogy, it's like a uh, main mission, uh, main story mission, main story quest versus secondary quest. You always have that quest that you can carry through and it will take you at the end of the game, but then you can explore even more. And back then there was this interesting thing where everybody were focusing on having the full 360 experience. It was like, hey, I'm doing VR, I need to exploit all 360. Thank God that those times are dead. And now, uh, especially again, the lovers realized that you need to be more focused and you need to be more... Uh, um, do you need to put more attention on what, what are you presenting? But there was one particular case, which was uh, um, uh, Mr. Robot's VR experience, which was a, a 360 video. So playing full actors with uh, uh, Rami Malek and uh, other um, 
and other actors from the cast. Uh, and Sam Raimi did a very good job into understanding that probably for one of the first time using fully that kind of VR immersive experience. And uh, it was actually very cool to look at those solutions and see how many analogies there were with what we were trying to do. Uh, we felt like we were in the right direction. Uh, so we actually went to France for to participate to a contest and uh, there were many other 360 videos that were suffering from the fact that you were needed to turn around a lot. Again, I'm not saying you shouldn't do it. I just say you should do it with a purpose, not yeah. just to say to people they should turn around like crazy. Yeah, no, definitely. And what, what year was this when this came out? 2016, 17, oh, wow. I believe. Yeah, and that's right around the time we were we were doing VR stuff too. And we were in gear VR and Oculus. And I mean, it's, it's come so far since then. So, I mean, you, yeah, you were really one, you're trying to do something no one's done before. And two, you were sort of getting into it during the, you know, sort of advent period, the nascent stage of, of this sort of VR craze. That's really, really taken off now. But back then it was still very new. It was, but we started even earlier than that because when I joined that company uh, before my other video game experience, uh, the company was uh, one of the bakers of the Kickstarter project for Oculus in 2014. So we started even earlier than that. Believe it that whenever we started, that there was no uh, motion tracking, no six DOF, nothing less right. of that sort. So uh, everything was generating much more motion sickness than it is right now. I remember I couldn't use that thing for more than 10 minutes before I was starting to get dizzy. Keep in mind something. I'm probably one of the best VR tester in Europe. Yeah. Because I suffer motion sickness a lot. Like I cannot even play FPS games without getting sick. And I'm not telling you in VR. Like it's straight in a 2D monitor. Right. So uh, for me, motion sickness was a very peculiar thing because if I wanted to code something that I could enjoy myself in the first place, I needed to respect some rules. And there are many rules to trick the mind. Uh, there are some that are much more famous. Like, for example, if you, you never accelerate, you usually uh, go and um, use a linear accelerate, a linear speed. So if I start to walk, for example, in VR, you should never accelerate, but go from zero to, I don't know, Tens meters, uh, tens meters per second. I was even too much, but just to understand, I probably described a rocket at this point to another person um, without going from zero to ten. Okay, or other things like if you need to change the perspective of the camera uh, from one place to another, so pretty much move the camera, you should always do it with a uh, not always, but it's very good practice to do it with um, shot fade to black. Because it tricks the mind to think that they blinked with their eyelids. Mm. So the, the brain registered that as, hey, you closed the eyelid, now you are in a weird another place. Of course, it's weird because you moved to another place, but it's not as weird as if you moved the camera. Right. I noticed that when you're going, like during the opening scenes with the with the war, there was, which makes sense. And, and that's true in film too. When you have a fade to black, there's a transition of time. And you do that between the chapters too. So that, you know, that makes sense. That's smart. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to step into the credibly uh, huge argument of uh, locomotion in VR. I'm not the best expert on it. And I work with some of those. And uh, there are uh, now very clever solutions that are applied. Um, during the in the, the most recent gains uh, between uh, different kind of teleport, uh, teleportation, uh, different kind of uh, fade to black that are not just fade to black, but they're blurring on the on the side. And uh, there are also some technique that allows you to have less motion sickness with uh, some LEDs that are uh, right on the side of the, of the the face. So there are several solutions. I'm afraid I must tell you that I haven't worked in VR in a few years. Probably I don't have all the latest news, but I tried to keep up because it was a good portion of my life and it was very fun uh, back then. Why do you think it wasn't successful? There might be a number of reasons for that, but what do you think were the chief reasons for why the project didn't turn out to be financially successful? I'd say that it was a very low-budget project with no marketing at all. It suffered from all the usual suspects that you have from in the market. Uh, and if you don't push well your product, your 
always come up with a dead solution and even worse than when your user base is tiny because back then it wasn't like this uh, today we have i don't know how many um units sold of psvr i don't know how many quests but we are talking combined some millions uh, of course not everybody will play your game but at least you have a pool back then it was the niche of a niche so it was like niche times two yeah it was so damn expensive too to get one of those things get a headset it still is if you see how much they price psvr2 that was just released like it cost sure. more than a ps5 yeah which is crazy i still believe that the biggest difference is always the software i mean uh, i love talking about the hardware the tech everything you can improve or some trade-off like you want more mobility then you need to have a lower gpu uh, or you want more power you need to have a cable or something that can uh, cast the wireless, cast wireless uh, the, the image without delays and all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, what sells are the product. And this is something, for example, that Nintendo knows very well. You know that Switch is not the most powerful console ever, to say the least. But they know that the product makes the difference. They know that whenever they release Breath of the Wild, they're going to have lots of uh, people uh, buying it. Same with Animal Crossing, same with Pokemon, etc. I believe PSVR 2 will have that leverage because it will have many great products releasing that probably drive some people to buy net. But I still believe we should aim for a more affordable VR, even at the cost of the tech. I just want to see, in my case, of course, for my area of expertise, I want to see great gains coming up. And right. if you see great gains, people will start to buy. It's probably that simple. Yeah, I think it's a great point about software versus hardware is like if you don't have any good software or not any good, but like if, if there aren't consistently great games on a platform, it doesn't matter. I mean, I just remember thinking about the uh, the PS3 when it came out, you know, back then, super powerful system, but it was for being sold for like five hundred, six hundred dollars. And there were no real great games on it. I bought PS3, I believe, at day one. I was I was uh, young and I probably bothered my parents to buy it up until they actually caved and i still remember that for that lack of gains i played the demo from metal gear solid to like i don't know 200 hours it was a <laughs> half an hour demo and i think i know it pixel by pixel at this point so and back then there wasn't really any game pass or this kind of stuff where you can jump from games when you get bored. So it was a different time. Yeah. Yeah. Very different time. And you're from Italy, right? I am. Yes. From Rome. In the early days of the show, we used to talk about people's childhoods and everything, but we started to have like a lot of people from similar places. And I stopped, you know, really going into that because it wasn't as interesting, but we haven't had anyone on from Italy. So I'm very interested to know what was that like as a kid? What was that like growing up? Bear in mind that I grew up in a part of Rome, which is uh, not, um, it's, doesn't have a good thing let's put it this way uh, because of criminality etc of course not everybody in that part are like this and not everything in rome is like that but there are some places that are worse than other for sure and uh, what was challenging is that when you have this focus of making it in a world that italy doesn't really consider which is the video game world it's really diff difficult to work for um, for great games in Italy, because at the end of the day, there aren't many options. Um, back then, the biggest company uh, was Milestone. In a way, it still is. Milestone is the company behind MotoGP, just for context. Today, we have some other example, like, for example, Ubisoft Milan, the guys behind uh, My Rabbits. Uh, but back then, there wasn't many options to work at great gains. So it's either small companies or uh, indie companies, etc. And it was very hard to understand that instead, outside Italy, uh, there was a place where you can be an associate, learn a lot of cool things, learn from the best, have that kind of mindset where you have these uh, big groups, group of people that can teach you a lot just by going into the office. Uh, when we were going to the office, but that's a different topic for the last past, past three years, I guess. Um, so that plus the lack of a real education system that gets you through the, the steps you need to take to become a game developer, because there wasn't really almost anything uh, 
recognize there were some schools, but it, it was challenging. So either you you find one of the schools and then you kind of put your foot in or you start to be a self-taught man. And that's what I did. I I went to a university that was explaining a little bit of many things, including coding, uh, Photoshop, Maya, and all that kind of stuff. It was very random and not very well formed, in my opinion. Uh, but it gave me uh, a way to learn about some stuff by knowing the right people. One of my very first jobs was actually from one of my professors then. In the meantime, I started studying when I was very little programming. Uh, I believe I was five or six, if I remember correctly. Um, and that was the Kickstarter for me, like knowing how to do things. I still remember, I don't remember how old I was, but I remember vividly that I was playing a video game with my brother, which was one of the FIFA on the Sega Mega Drive. And uh, I distinctly remember uh, that I asked, how do you make those meaning games? Like, I want to know. And no one could tell me anything. I didn't have any answer. There was no internet. I mean, there was, but it wasn't as it is right now. So, yeah, it, it, it wasn't easy, but um, on the pro sides, on the pro column, I got to work on many different projects that were quick. They were forcing me to do a lot of stuff like creative production. Uh, I pretty much was a, how do you say, jack of all trades, master of none. That gave me a real insight on many things that then later became useful when I decided to move to London to join um, uh, back then Slidemed and um, decided to amp up a little bit the the career in terms of uh, project volume and uh, in terms of, uh, of ambitions. And uh, I discovered that not everything I thought it was bad, it was actually bad. It's a kind of a unique path many coders go through universities start to learn coding very well and they are much better than me at this point to code because they had a different kind of uh, laying the ground um, uh, uh, path but uh, at the end of the day I think I've done okay with the caveat that um, doing this will mean that you leave behind a lot of technology that you had to recover later and that's probably the greatest mystery about every coder if you stop studying even for a minute you're kind of done yeah why were you interested more in the programming side than you were say the artistic side or some other discipline i believe because i sucked the other things. <laughs> <laughs> i mean there was like a choice like you want to make gains okay you have few path art design and um, programming now design especially in italy no one knew what that was like if you ask people, oh, can I be a game designer? Yeah, what that means exactly. Uh, we didn't have that knowledge. And for many parts, we still don't have that knowledge uh, about what a game designer does exactly. Uh, you need to go into the industry and uh, see great game designer working to uh, have a first glimpse if you didn't study like it and if you didn't went to uh, brighter schools. So that left me when I was... Uh, little uh, to decide between programming and art and since I suck at drawing which was the very best basic thing you do as a child I said hey maybe the logical path it's much better but I never considered myself an, as an, an engineer despite the role I actually have because uh, I always consider myself as a game developer I will do anything that takes make a game if making a game means like I don't know uh, nicking wool or um, uh, I don't know, making a pizza, I, I would do that. Instead to make a game, so you need to code. So I learned to code. Beyond uh, what you were mentioning earlier, what else did you do? How did you specifically teach yourself programming? What languages did you start with? Uh, where did you begin? I'd say I'd begin with uh, asking my mom for a for dummies book of C++. That was probably my very first programming book. And got to tell you, I understood nothing at the start. <laughs> uh, but yeah. then it got into me, it got into my skin. So I started to study everything I could put my hands on. And then I discovered that to make games, you need an engine. And then I started to discover there were engine, or at least there were um, 
things that you needed to study more on the low level, so OpenGL. I mean, the, the usual suspect that you could find back then was the Red Book, which is a great book about uh, uh, how OpenGL works, still available today with many, many versions. Uh, there was uh, this forum that was very historical called Nihe, it was spelled Nihe, uh, probably people uh, that were, were into graphical programming know this very well uh, but then there wasn't there were many resources so i started to use some engines that were free i distinctly remember that uh, when uh, before entering uh, university when i was 17 or so uh, i started for example using ogre or Herlicht. Uh there were free engine that you can code in C++ and I started having experiments in there. Uh, Unity was very far away uh, from in terms of timeline. I, Unreal uh, wasn't, uh, I believe Unreal was already there but wasn't really useful uh, because it was having a commercial project, um, commercial license, sorry. Um, the fact that there weren't many options gave me the luck to try the hardest one which felt more like proprietary engine that I have worked on in the, in the past 10, 15 years, and less more um, ready solution. I believe for uh, people nowadays to start in this, uh, uh, there is a lot of things that they can study, a lot of tech that they can catch up, but there are way more resources in terms of learning, tutorials, uh, uh, courses on Udemy. It's much, much easier, and at the same time, it's much, much of a nightmare because you don't really know where to start. What is right. worth your time? So, what did you start creating when you sort of started to understand the basics of programming? Did you start to try and make smaller games, or did you just do sort of logic things? What were you making? I made the same mistake every indie coder made. I tried to do the very the biggest game I could think right. of. <laughs> like, can yeah. we do another GTA? Uh, but I believe that's a rite of passage. If you don't do that when you're young, I believe you're missing out. I mean, many people will tell yeah. you, you need to do something very small, very contained, because it teaches you a lot. I agree, but you need to try the craziness, because it will force yeah. you to find many solutions and then realize that you were stupid after all. The first level I ever made was an outdoor level, and... The assignment in school was to, you know, just make an indoor level, something simple. And I was just like, oh, that's boring, man. I, I want to make like an outdoor level with a story and a narrative and all this stuff. So we're, we're using Unreal. I wind up making this huge forest level, all these rocks, all these different kinds of trees. I wrote like a rock script to generate like random rocks and stuff. And it turned into this all consuming thing. And it was kind of, it wasn't a disaster. It had a waterfall too. It had all this stuff, but it was, it was really ambitious. It wasn't great, but it was ambitious. I, I threw the kitchen sink at it, but it was huge in teaching me. Now you can understand what needs to be done practically now. So yeah, I totally agree with you that it is important to just be over ambitious. Screw up when you're young. If you don't do that back then, you're, you're not going to have some teaching lesson. Then you always have time to understand that to make an open world, you need a, a streaming world partition, you need a quest system, you need a, a loading phases well planned, you need a lot of stuff that you didn't even think possible. Sometimes you discover this kind of stuff by making mistakes like, hey, why this open world I'm trying to make very stupidly is now popping up in the screen, loading like... It just was created, and you discover, hey, word partition is a thing. So, some, I mean, you can study this thing in theory, but sometimes learning on your skin is always a good thing. Yeah, and I think that's the only way to really learn. I mean, you can look at books all day and talk to people, and there's value to be gained there, but until you do it, it doesn't really matter. I, I agree. I mean, we, we can see that... Uh, People, associates, when we hire associates, uh, we can see a transformation uh, through the very, even the very first year. Like uh, an associate coming out from a university and the same associate one year later are kind of like two different coders, like day and night, because they learn to do stuff in, in, uh, in development environment and then in production, they learn so a lot, they start to uh, have a very good interaction with the team. They start to understand that you need to code simple instead of trying to use uh, 72,000 templates because it makes you cooler. Uh, so there are some aspects that you go through actually working in a game industry that uh, you 
can just see it when you start working. And that's probably my best advice, do things. Because the best way to proceed is to do things. Uh, you need to plan it, you need to be good at feature planning, system design planning. Uh, and I agree that we always need a plan that the production part in me is extremely, uh, extremely severe on that part. But eventually you need to stop and say, okay, I actually need to do this thing. Did you ever hit a wall with programming when you thought, I can't do this, this is crazy, I'm done, um, or you had doubt, anything like that? I'd say yes and no, because yes, every day you hit a wall. Every time you try to do a new thing, you hit a wall and you have that period where you say, hey, this is not working. Like, I don't know, or one of the uh, the wall I actually remember was um, trying to use the shaders the first time. And I mean, like really coding in OpenGL how the shaders should interact with your uh, with your shader, compiling them, and then trying to understand how they operate on the graphical card. And I, I'm not a graphical programmer; that's not my area of expertise, and uh, probably never be because, again, jack of all trades, master of none. But uh, you need to do what you need to do sometimes. And the first time I went into it, it was kind of a wall. But that's just an example. In terms of in general terms, the answer was yes and no, because also I know that, uh, again, I'm not in this to create games. So whenever I hit the wall, I always try to find an alternative solution. So I never get stuck in a wall too much. I was trying to find either uh, something else to do or a person who knows more. And that's probably the one of the advice. Uh, for example, in our company, whenever someone joins, um, we always say the same things like, don't be shy and ask. There is no stupid question. And this applies from when you're young to when you have 35 years of experience. You cannot know everything. You just can't. Uh, and it's not a shame to ask people that are better than you for stuff. If there is someone that is uh, that have, I don't know, memory profiling skills and is very expert in that, and you don't ask. Just ask, just to give an example. Uh, if you don't ask, that's where you're making the mistake. Yeah, that's uh, classic programming. Feels like a lot of the best programmers I know would define themselves. I'm speaking for them, and I shouldn't, but problem solvers, right? When there's a problem, it's like you're not just going to throw up your hands and give up. You're going to figure out how to solve the problem. Yeah, you always do the same things, like splitting a huge problem in smaller problems, trying to find smaller solution and try to apply that also to your personal life, I believe. Uh, I cannot qualify as uh, one, of the, uh, one of the good programmers for the reasons I told. I only care about games, but I've met and worked with extremely good programmers and uh, I had very good mentors and I was very lucky, especially in the past four years, to know uh, extremely talented people and they all think of the same like never get stuck, always find a solution and uh, always find a realistic solution. Because if you design something that will take six years and 20 people to do it and it will solve a problem that manually you can do it in 10 minutes, maybe it's not worth it. So there is always a trade-off on what you're trying to do and what's the outcome. Always ask yourself, why am I doing this? So you mentioned that you love production. When did that start? Why did it start? I have never met a programmer that I know, at least, that loves production process. So take us through how that happened. Yeah, I'm considered the freak on nature also from my colleagues. <laughs> Don't worry. Uh, I, yeah. like, I like planning. I like calls. I like all that kind of stuff. So yeah, that's peculiar, I reckon. That started, uh, it's like I was mentioning, I was forced to do everything. And at some point, by trying everything, uh, I, I discovered that I actually like to plan things, to have an aerial view of the projects I'm working on, seeing the uh, high-end goals, see how all the team is going, try to see what everybody's doing uh, uh, in a broader term. There are uh, many coders who are great uh, uh, going deep into uh, a specific system, etc. And uh, unfortunately, that is not one of my strengths. 
So I need to play with what I can do best. And usually uh, learning your weaknesses is like one of the best soft skills you can develop. It's also one of the hardest that you need to develop. So once I found out that I was liking it, I discovered that, hey, maybe I can do kind of like a cross. Not say I'm, uh, I'm a producer, far from it. We have producers in our company that are amazing, and thank God we have them because if we all come down to my work, it will probably be already exploded. Uh, but uh, I try to help as much as I can on that side because I really enjoy it. So it started like a necessity. It developed like a side part of my job, and it's now part of what I'm doing because uh, um, I am... A technical director at the moment, which means that I have to have the clear vision of what the project looks like from the uh, from the view of the mountain. Let's put it this way. Um, and that comes with a production part in it. You cannot be just a coder when you need to drive the team to do a game. Again, start as a necessity, follow up as an, uh, one of the things I enjoy. And I, uh, I'm actually liking it to be that cross between tech and planning. Well, I tell you what, you're probably a producer's best friend. I'm not going to say that. You should ask my, <laughs> my colleagues. And... Yeah. <laughs> well, on paper, at least. Um, do you have any uh, explicit experiences with production, like uh, any good or bad things that happen where you really learn something from those experiences that, have, that, that help you now? Bad production experience, uh, I had a few. Um, probably one of the greatest bad production experience was when I was, uh, I don't know, 20 and we needed to port a game from, uh, um, from a proprietary engine uh, to Unity. And uh, we the production on that project was that we needed to estimate what was the work and what were the uh, pain points, the um, uh, the thing that could go wrong, uh, pretty much planned for disaster and then apply the usual production style in Italy. And uh, we didn't do that very well. I was, wasn't even good at it and the people were um, nearby me probably overlooked at it. Uh, and uh, we ended up uh, having a project that was supposed to last three months. After six months, it wasn't ready and was disregarded by the client. It was the client literally rejected the product and said, I'm going to go with this to somebody else. And uh, I can tell you many, many things that went well production-wide in the past years. Uh, I actually work on releasing, uh, I believe, uh, I work on many games that were actually successful, but as for the interview, side that you should never be afraid of failure because uh, whenever you face something like this you learn something i never made that mistake again never i always trying to look everything that could go wrong i'm not saying that i'm gonna be doing perfect planning but not as bad as that one for the good example i'm not gonna mention anything for the reason that a good production is like uh, a good waiter at the restaurant you don't realize it's there Everything goes smoothly, you get served your meal, you get served your water, you don't even realize they're there, you keep chatting with your friend and everything is enjoyable. If you have that kind of producer, keep your keep them tight to you because they are precious. You've worked on a lot of car games, but none more infamous than the Fast and the Furious Crossroads. How much can you talk about that project? Uh, first of all, I always use it as a point uh, to during my interviews um, because I always start with, hey, I participated in the game that was voted the worst game of the decade. And usually is a very nice icebreaker uh, because uh, then you start wondering like, okay, what were you doing there? Why was bad? Why, what part was good, etc. And I want to start with the good things. Uh, first of all, the team behind it, was one of the best engineering team I ever worked with. That's without a doubt. There was so much uh, skill, so much knowledge, so much passion. Even about the franchise, the creative team, for example, was really hyped to work on a Fast and Furious game. They were fun of the first hours of the franchise. So uh, all the problem that game had was bad luck and probably bad production, not in terms of producers, but in terms of putting the game in a weird period. Uh, I still remember that 
back then the Slima Studio was releasing three games in the same month. Uh, Project Cars Core, Project Cars 3, and Fast and Furious Crossroads in a very in a great variety of different platforms. And uh, I still remember everyone doing whatever they can to um, to release. Uh, they literally went not the extra mile, like uh, the extra parsec. And um, there is nothing to blame to them. It's just that usually to make these kind of gains, uh, you need to f allow these kind of gains the time they need and the resources they need. And then we're neither one or the other, I, I believe, in my opinion. And you uh, ended up with a product that could, was supposed to be way more fun than what it was. Uh, I still enjoy some of the bits. I don't think it's all bad, as many people say. Yeah, I don't understand how why it got so much hate, honestly. Um, I never played it, but I watched enough footage of it from from people I watch that play play games. And I was like... This isn't terrible. Some of the missions were a little repetitive and I don't think the online gameplay was as good as it could have been, but it wasn't like a total travesty. It wasn't uh, Duke Nukem Forever or something like that. And I don't know if it was just because it had the Fast and the Furious name on it that it got so much attention. Um, I think that could certainly have had something to do with it. If that had been a game that wasn't tied to an IP, I don't think it would, would have blown up the way it did. Probably. I mean, there were some things that uh, weren't as clean as they should, could be, but some other sections were more fun to play. Mm -hmm. And I still believe that much, that was the best part. Much of the complaints I read about it because I was curious, right, uh, right. about well, the game. Uh, that was my, wasn't my main project. Back then, I was the uh, lead engineer on Project Cars Pro, and I was uh, pretty much landed to the team. So uh, I was landed to the gameplay and system team. I still believe that uh, the biggest complaint we had, it was like, this game is exaggerated. Like uh, you have the grapple hook, you have the bazooka, the explosion. Which is crazy. I mean, Fast and the Furious is incredibly exaggerated. I mean, exactly. you got cars jumping out of planes in the, like, the seventh or eighth one or whatever it was. I mean, that's ridiculous to me. Yeah, exactly. If you cut away the first part of the franchise, which were uh, the f very couple of first couple of movies where they were mostly more about racing, then the movie franchise started really to exaggerate in every possible way, and uh, literally, I mean, last one was literally in space. Right. So uh, don't get that critique. I mean, there were a lot of critiques that were solid and fair, but that one in particular struck me because I don't think that was actually accurate. Right. Yeah, no, I don't. I don't think so either. But yeah, so lack of lack of time sounds like was was one of the one of the things that really hurt it, though. What you're saying. Well, yeah, lack of time and resources, and uh, yeah. It's a it's a pattern that you see a lot in the games these days. Uh, the game development changed a lot since the days where you couldn't apply a day zero patch or you could have DLCs. Back then, you need to release a game that was on uh, on the disc, and that was it. Uh, nowadays, uh, that process of having the games uh, be able to update themselves pretty quickly started to become a pattern in game development, like let's release as early as possible and then we fix it later. But yeah. most of the games that do that don't fix it later. And the other games that instead start to fixing the game, um, these do it with a lot of uh, resources and a lot of effort. And if you do it right with the heart in the right place, you end up with great results. There are many games that started poorly. I, I don't know, the very two first games that I can think about this pattern are um, No Man's Sky and Sea of Thieves. But we then discover, uh, we then saw what happened later. They put heart on it, they put effort on it, they improved and improved and improved and improved, and now they are two very different games from when they started. And that is like, uh, um, uh, like something that I have a lot of steam, like I really like that they done that, but not every game can afford that. It's almost like right. a life. It not so almost like it is a life service environment, and uh, uh, and continuous effort over the years. Sometimes you need to realize that the scope of the game is smaller, and you need to present a smaller game. I actually don't like the fact that usually the game needs to achieve a certain 
amount of how gameplay hours to be viable to be sold at 70 totally euros, agree. for example. Yeah. Sometimes I like to see, I don't know, a game that is five hours, 10 hours, but done with a real state of art. And the games that I like the most in the past gen, for example, uh, again, aside Breath of the Wild, which was a pretty much the game of the last gen, and I believe almost 98% of the people will agree with me. But for example, the games that I remember the most, one of, above all is Outer Wilds. Otherwise, was a game much smaller in scope. Uh, it wasn't that big AAA blockbuster, but I still suggest to play it to every friends and colleagues I have if they haven't, even on above many other bigger games. Because it's really showed that when you take care of a certain gameplay aspects, a certain narrative path, and you do it with the, uh, with the right amount of passion and, of course, expertise, because if you only have passion but no expertise, you're not going to do anything at all. And then you deliver a product that stays into that boundaries. You really say, okay, this is a game I actually want to uh, spread the word because it deserves it. Uh, I want to yeah. see that way more, more than triple A's. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, also the older I get, the less time I have for playing games. So I do want to, when I do play a game, I don't want to play like a 80 hour game or whatever. Rarely will I make an exception for that or even something over like 20 hours. Like I'd rather have like a solid, like you're saying, five, 10 hour, whatever game that is great. That may not be as long as other games, but it it takes me on a ride and I have a good time with it. That That's the most important thing to me is like, Brevity is so important, I feel like, in games. And sometimes things just get tacked on and you have to keep going and going and going. Like, I mean, the last Red Dead Redemption, which I like quite a bit, uh, Red Dead Redemption 2, took me like nine months to finish it because I, there's so much to do, which is cool, but it's also like, man alive, I'm kind of ready for this to be over. I, I agree. I mean, it depends on what, what part of the life you're living, I guess, because uh, I, for example, I was the main tank of a very... A large guild in Italy uh, for uh, six or seven years in World of Warcraft. And right. I believe you want that to go on I, forever. Yeah. <laughs> yes. If I believe if I go there back there and use the slash played command that gives you the total amount of gameplay hours, I believe we are having I don't know probably hundred thousand hours on that game. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But. That was a different time in my life. Now, of course, as you, I expect more to have a, a shorter but better experience. Of course, having a kid doesn't help playing. Um, but I get that people want to play more and they want to be connected to the game to the point that they had fun on the first 20, 30 hours and they want to keep going on. My problem with that is that many times, especially open world, but it's not just stricted to the open world try to do many repetitive things just to hook you up make you farm and uh, mm -hmm. keep you in there with low quality content and you can even see that in the very same game like the main quest is awesome and then you go in the secondary quest that are there just to stretch the time rpg elements feed in a little too much i think to that where it's like oh yeah you got to get a little stronger so let's add some side quests for you sort of deal yeah i agree just to give you an example, I loved Elden Ring as much mm -hmm. as the next guy. Yeah, I still haven't played it. I definitely want to. I love most of the From Software games, so I definitely need to play it at some point. Yeah, uh, to, to tell you the truth, my favorite game from From Software is Sekiro. For a very I love specific, Sekiro. There is a very specific reason why I love Sekiro. It's because it does... They found this gameplay aspect that is magical, where you don't level the character, you level yourself. Yes. yes. You, you feel like that you click with the game and you level up as a gamer, not the character. Totally that agree. You and totally uh, agree. After Genichiro, everything changed. Uh, and <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, that, that like the Katarkin moment. Uh, yes, that that was like that's the put up or shut up moment where you're either gonna you're either gonna beat that guy or this is where you stop kind of thing this is where the game breaks you but when you yeah i totally agree with that like those games and i love that they did that because they they are you know they make rpgs and sekiro is not an rpg and you're exactly right like you got better as a player as you went along yeah you improved your health and things like that but it was mostly like how good can you get at this 
how good can you get at the pairing system and stunning people and, and whatnot? Um, I thought it was, I thought it was a brilliant, absolutely brilliant from a systemic standpoint, a pitch perfect game. Yeah. It's frustrating. I'm not going to say it. it's not because it is, but there is one brilliant <laughs> thing you, you mentioned that. Yeah. yeah you can um, upgrade your health, but to upgrade your health, you need to beat the boss. You cannot farm to upgrade your health. That was the brilliant move to that, to me. Uh, it was one of those uh, gameplay concepts that changes a lot. Like, for example, talking about CRTs, one of the greatest things about CRTs is the concept of you lose everything after you play. You lose your ship, you need to restart. And if you don't put uh, your uh, treasures in, uh, you don't collect your treasure with the quest givers, uh, you even lose that. So having the, the chest with the treasure is not a guarantee that you've done that. That started a whole kind of meta game around that like the chest is not as safe someone can steal it you can sink your ship and lose it etc and put that kind of fear effort that front software games have a lot like i have something to lose and this game this concept is not present in many games nowadays because they tend to uh, save a lot during the process. They tend to uh, make you start very close from when you died. I don't say that there shouldn't be easy game. I like having easy game once in a while. I like having even walking experience. If I have to quote another great game from the past generation for me was uh, what uh, what remains of Edith Finch, for example. Is it's a walking game. You don't have to do almost nef- anything, but it's stuck in my memory. I love it. And uh, I replay it or rewatch it on YouTube regularly. Uh, so you don't have to serve a difficult game just because difficult is good. You have to serve a challenge. Either the challenge is a narrative or a challenge is a, a game claim, gameplay concept. It has to have something unique in it. Otherwise, you're not bringing value to the gaming world. Yeah. And you're going to lose people that like us that have been playing games for a long time and sort of know the ins and outs of how, what the experiences that we want. Uh, last question I have for you, totally unrelated to a lot of things we've been talking about, but what do you think about AI for art? I think it's a really interesting subject and we've talked to a lot of artists about it, but we never talked to a programmer about it. So I'm interested in your thoughts on you know creating art with AI. I have a more general opinion on AI that eventually derives into the AI artist. I want to start with the fact that, of course, in the past months, the advent of ChatGPT and uh, GitHub Copilot and all these kind of tools kind of strangled a little bit the discussion around AI artists. So there were a period uh, a few months back where uh, when uh, Midjourney or Dali were taking the scene because they were the most uh, flashing uh, usage of AI and then ChatGPT came out and kind of outshouted them. As a coder, the AI, what is doing AI, I'm trying to embrace it because I would be extremely worried if I uh, I was an associate right now about AI for coders. I was literally talking about this with a colleague today. And since I'm not an associate anymore, I can embrace it, use it. I ask ChatGPT stuff every day about stuff that I want to do with Perforce or with the code or asking to comment some pieces of code or even ask about, I don't know, how should I ask some kind of question during my calls. It's very good to do these kind of things and I try to embrace it, not to be scared of it. I can understand why AI artists are scared because while in my example, it's an integration. In their example, it's a substitution. And it's a substitution for low-level jobs because a good concept artist, a good uh, artist that already has a career will have less difficulty to sell his position, to sell itself to the client because he will say, hey, you're not just buying someone that would draw something on the paper or on or Photoshop or on whatever other program uh, they're going to use, but you're buying someone that can think about the concept for the industry, that has experience, that knows how to uh, deliver something that uh, players will want to play in terms of um, captivating art, etc. But for many other people who work in that to produce content, and when the client especially doesn't really care about the quality, AI art is a threat. Artists need to embrace it, not in the sense that they need to surrender to it, but they need to understand how to use it because 
many many things will move into that direction whether they want it or not whether we like it or not and most of us don't like it but it's going to happen anyway it's already happening there are like web series uh, comics that are using uh, uh, environments or backgrounds uh, done with mid-journey there uh, there are many other kind of ai that are serving animations for example for 3d models and there are a lot of usage of what is happening so even if you don't like it, my suggestion, which is what we coders are trying to do, is to get along with it because there's no escape. And probably the other controversial point is um, rights, like who hold the rights of the training model. You train the AI without almost without asking permission to the artist, and it's already too late to rectify that. But it's not too late to talk about what will happen next. And uh, it doesn't concern very much coders because if you think about it, uh, coders have their code nested in their products for, uh, for since when they start. There are games that are worth 15 years ago that are still running the code that I wrote and there was really no problem in to derive the code, reuse it, uh, destroy it and write them from scratch. Uh, we are not as concerned as that. Also because tech evolves a lot. So usually what you've wrote six months ago, maybe a plugin got updated and you need to re redo it from scratch. Uh, hopefully not, but <laughs> it, has, it can happen. With art, the things are more, uh, it's more difficult than that. Because if you train an AI to do your style, then the AI can replicate your style. Not very greatly as you can. There are a lot of different problems. Like the most famous one is the hands problem with the fingers, AI still cannot draw fingers very well. Uh, but Sometimes faces too. Faces get a little messed up and like in the eyes and whatnot. Yeah, that's actually, uh, sometimes it's it's a censorship, not in terms of tech. They're not great at it, but most part of why you always sometimes see the face blurred is because of, uh, um, of a block that the ah. developers of the AI make. Okay. Um, in terms of fingers, that's a good example of a clear example of a you're um, hanging on the fact that the AI is better at it, but you're not considered two things. One, it's not gonna be better at forever. Two, even now you can take the image and just fix the stuff that is uh, just broken. And I have many uh, artists friends that are starting to play with it, starting to play with a level like the temperature level, which is this level that pretty much tells you how much you, the AI should explore um, from your prompt. So you prompt a text and the AI, uh, based on that level, this is one of the basic uh, settings that you can touch in this kind of AI, tells you how much you should respect your prompt or how much you should go in a fantasy way other into other direction and gives you options. Uh, there are many, many other settings and there are also possibility to fine tune the model and put other training sets uh, to it and have many artist friends that are using it to fix the stuff that the AI is doing, doing well and then pass it over uh, to do the rest. And there are many other friends that said wants to do everything manually because they still feel that there is a great touch as I, as with everything, this is my credo for everything. The truth is always in the middle. It's always a balanced act. Uh, if you start to real uh, only use AI, you're going to have a bad time. If you don't embrace it, you're going to have a bad time. Try to integrate it. And again, this stands for everything. We are on the verge of seeing a, a similar approach to ChatGTP in Bing because Microsoft uh, poured, I believe, 10 billions, if I'm correct, into OpenAI. Uh, so they invested a lot in it and they're going to integrate. It's actually already integrated, but it's a closed beta uh, into Bing. So your next thing you're going to see, it's something weird that we never thought it would happen. People will start using Bing instead of Google to search hmm. things. It's crazy if you think about The Google it, killer. Couple of the... Can you imagine that? Yeah, I mean, that's, I can't. That's nuts. I, really I can't, can't either. Yeah, all this AI stuff really at the precipice here of something. I don't know if it's going to be great or if it's going to be terrible or somewhere. Maybe it'll be somewhere in the middle, but we're definitely about to see it really take off in a lot of different ways. The thing with the AI, expect all other technology that they try to push, is that it works. And when something works, even if it doesn't work very well at the moment, but you have a prospect that it works, if something works, it gets interested, it gets investors, it gets users base, it gets attention. 
And when something gets attention, it's really hard to slow. And I don't even see the reason to slow it because uh, if I can have a chat GPT like into my search engine giving me the answer plus fetching me the links I need, uh, it means the real web 3.0. Uh, that's going to be the real thing. And uh, again, sometimes I go into my work and start to ask things to chat GPT. Most of the time it's not correct what they say, but it gives me hints to search into the right direction. So the ability for us human to distinguish if the AI is going wrong, is going good, is still on us to study, evaluate, and try to understand what they're saying. But the prompt of easing up some of those things uh, it can be used. I mean, the, probably the stupidest example I can think of is people uh, not knowing how to do simple math uh, nowadays with addition, multiplication, etc. Because a calculator, now you have it on your smartphone, etc. But I think the biggest question is, are you really missing it? Like, is anyone missing doing math in your head? Yeah. I mean, I don't think anyone's missing that, but it also becomes, you know, when you don't have the technology available to you for whatever reason, then you sort of become a little brain dead, I feel like. The potential for that in terms of like, you're so, you, I, I think people can become so reliant on something that if they can't do it for themselves, then that becomes a problem. I think that's the it thing that can. kind of scares me the most about the future. Um, you know, like GPS is, people don't even have to know where they're going anymore. But if their phone dies, you know, I remember I had someone I went to with school that was totally reliant on GPS. His GPS died one day. And this was in like 2014. And he's like, I didn't know where I was going. I don't know how I got here. Like it took me like two hours as opposed to 30 minutes. So that's the thing I kind of worry about is like the smarter AI gets, the more dependent we are on it, the less we have to do, then we become less self-sufficient, which somewhat is good, but can also have its detriments too. Uh, that's true. I mean, it's important to train a, a good uh, mental process to think about things in a, um, in a, in an efficient way, even right. if you don't know some stuff. If I get lost with my GPS, I'll probably be in a very same situation as your right. friend. Uh, but after a couple of hours of desperation, I will probably start to uh, go back into my mindset that, hey, I don't have the GPS, let's find the solution. Again, Right. problem solving. Yeah. Uh, but I don't want to even start to think about the plan if we don't have things, because I believe we lost the train. We lost the train where we started to have penicillin or when we started to have uh, uh, even more basic stuff. I mean, looking back and saying, I'm going to miss these things. Yes, it's true. Uh, but as long as your mind can think, I believe you're always going to find the solution. And I hope we are really far away from a post-apocalyptic uh, yeah. deadline yeah, where we need to <laughs> adapt to everything else. Yeah. So I want to be optimistic. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. But I think that's important what you said earlier, it's like, how do you utilize it? Don't let it replace, you know, maximize its efficiency, but don't let it replace you uh, as an artist, as a programmer, as a person. Yeah. I mean, also uh, another probable advice I can give, uh, learn about uh, train and develop your soft skills. Uh, this is a thing that will never be replaced because uh, in every, especially in the video game industry, but in every industry, there is a human aspect that even if you have a bunch of machine working on your code, uh, there is still someone that wants a product and someone that needs to deliver it. And there are always going to be that kind of interaction. And there's always going to be a level of, like, for example, in game design. Yes, you can ask one of these AI to design a game, uh, but it's always going to be a game design from a trained model. As I was saying, with, for example, with Other Wilds, the greatest thing about games like that is that they push the limit uh, forward. They push the limit further. And to do that, you need to do new things. Of course, it's in the human nature to steal. Uh, who said that the great uh, good artists uh, copy the great artists steal? It was Picasso, I believe. Uh, I don't remember, but the point is that that is true. Like we have always have a base ground where we start looking at things and we uh, develop new ideas using those ideas, and that kinds kinds of what the AI is doing. But we have a biggest bigger advantage of that because we can really create new things, even if we are just taking inspiration. AI at the moment can't. Again, I'm not saying it 
cannot do it in the future. It probably shouldn't do it because of how the train models are working. But I want to quote uh, um, a coder, Distra, which is famous for a lot of pathfinding algorithms, that once said that um, they asked him if uh, he thinks that the AI can think. And he said that uh, asking me if the AI can think is asking me like if a submarine can swim. There are two different processes and you cannot really compare. You can compare the basics because, for example, stuff like reinforcement learning was uh, modeled around how uh, humans and animals train about things. One biggest example is how uh, kids start learning how to walk, which is trying uh, to do a lot of random movements. And then whenever they got the right one, the body releases a dopamine to tell the kid that he's doing correctly. This is what's happening with reinforcement learning, um, for example. Like you train the AI to try to do many, 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 many things. And then there is a reward when they do the correct things based on some parameters. So the base ground of how the AI is modeled is similar to what we studied. But then eventually it becomes very different whenever we reach that point of the unknown how, how our brains really connects all these kind of thoughts and create new ones. So if you need to leverage that, at least for now, we should be that kind of soft skills and inventive side. Yeah, no, well said. I think that brings us perfectly to the conclusion here. So Fabio, thank you so much for stopping by to talk with us. A really good time, especially this AI stuff. I could talk about that all day, but I don't want to take up too much of your time. But thanks again for, for being on the show. We really enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. It was really a pleasure to be here, and I'm always glad to have discussion like that. Uh, I have it every day, and I cannot get it enough. All right, that wraps up this week's show. We want to thank Fabio again for being our guest. To find out more about Mudstack, head over to mudstack.com, where you can follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and join our community on Discord. And of course, we want to thank you for listening. We'll see you next time on Clear as Mud.